0: In his final days, Alexander the Great's generals asked him who should succeed him. Alexander's answer, the strongest. Taken literally, this would see the close of the classical Greek age, an age thousands of years in the making. Join me, Mark Selick, as I go back to retell the story of Ancient Greece in my series Casting Through Ancient Greece. We will cast our way back to its beginnings, all the way through to the spread of its culture throughout the known world, thanks to Alexander and his generals. You can listen and subscribe to the series at www.castingthroughancientgreece.com, or you can listen on your favourite podcasting platform. Don't forget to follow the series over on Twitter at castinggreece or on Facebook at casting through ancient Greece. I look forward to seeing you there. Gamarjova, and welcome to the history of Sagardello, Georgia. I'm your host, Roberto, and this is episode 9, the Mithridatic Wars, Iberia. In today's episode, we look at King Artog of Iberia's actions as reflected in the Kartlis Hovrieva, what the Roman sources had to say about him, talking about the Armenians somewhat, it's inevitable, and going into Pompey's conquest of the region. Before we start... I would like to thank listener Alexander for his donation of For the Love of Wine by Alice Fearing. It is so highly appreciated, and you're the first one to do so. So once again, Madlaba, thank you, and I'm glad you enjoyed the show. Last time, we took a look at how Colchis was affected by the rule of Mithridates VI Eupater, a.k.a. the Poison King, a.k.a. winner of the Father of the Year Award, Mithridates of Colchis, and Macarius, and how it was essentially a resource keg for Mithridates. But enough about Colchis. What about Iberia? We begin our story under the reign of Artag, king of Iberia, after the death of his father, Arshak. Artag ruled from 78 BC to 63 BC. However, I'm sad to say that we don't know much about the early reign of Artag, but what we do know about him is thanks to his encounters with the Romans, who made an unusually good source thanks to their dedicated chroniclers of the Mithridatic Wars. However, before we dig into the Roman sources, we need to look at our Georgian sources, because, oh boy, are they wrong. Instead of summarizing the whole thing, I'm just going to read it to you, because it's literally just a paragraph. It may have to do with Artax's early rule, it may not, but since we don't have dates, we can't confirm it, and other sources don't agree with this, that we know of. King Artag reigned for only two years. In the second year of his reign, the Persian Aristavis came with a vast army to avenge Parnajom and the Persian army that had been destroyed along with him. Artag, the king of the Georgians, was unable to withstand them, for the forces of the Persians were great, but he reinforced the fortresses and towns. The Persians crossed over the whole of Kartli and ravaged the valleys, but being unable to seize any of the fortresses, they left. Artag died and Bartom ascended the throne. End quote. Bartom being Khfarnabaz II. And this is literally all that is in his section of the Kartlis Khobriaba. I mean, we literally have the classic sources saying he ruled from 78 BC to 63 BC. So I don't really believe that King Artag died for two years because we have more people talking about Artag during the Mithridatic Wars. So... On to the Roman sources. We will need to talk a bit more about Mithridates so that we can get a better picture. I know, it is a lot of crossover, but he was not just in Colchis. So, around the year 110 BC, Mithridates started threatening the Roman Republic by conquering or inheriting, according to other sources, the Bosporan kingdom located around the Sea of Azov. But to be fair, the Romans would use any excuse to go to war, and they were probably a little biased towards themselves when they wrote all this down. After gaining these huge tracts of land, he set his sights on Lesser Armenia, Colchis, and the Anatolia region. King Tikranes II, the Great, of Greater Armenia, then formed an alliance through marriage with Mithridates. Mithridates caused a distraction by landing his army in Greece while Tigranes used the opportunity to conquer the northwestern region of Parthia and to dominate Caucasian Albania. During his little sightseeing trip in Greece, Mithridates was expelled from the region thanks to a whole slew of local rebellions and Roman legions. He nevertheless decided that the third time was the charm and declared war on Rome in 73 BC. Third time the charm was right but not in the way he expected. This would be his last war with the Romans. The Romans retaliated and sent the military leader Lucullus to attack Tigranes II in 69 BC. This, of course, brought the Iberians and Caucasians into the war, because, as we mentioned in episode 7, Artag was a grandson of a former Armenian king. These Iberians and Caucasian Albanians fought fiercely with the Armenians, the Iberian javelin throwers famously being a force to be reckoned with. It's sad to note that we don't know if Artek joined the Armenians just because they asked, or if it was because they didn't want any Romans walking in Iberian land. Iberian participation caused the Romans to invade anyways. Like seriously, why join a fight if you don't want to fight? However, thanks to the Caucasian winter and mutinous Roman soldiers, Lucunus had to withdraw from the region, Things were starting to look good, and then, in 66 BC, Rome sent Pompey. Upon Pompey's arrival, Mithridates' army had begun withdrawing into Colchis. Pompey ordered Servilius' fleet to contain them in a Crimean Bosporus, all the while he was off marching through the Caucasus. But what reasons did he have for going up there? Pompey wanted to cut off the Caucasian steppe nomads, who would harass his troops while he was going after Mithridates, and became rather adamant about securing Iberia and Caucasian Albania as an ally or subject of Rome. It also helped that the branch of the Silk Road that passed through India and China also passed by the Caspian Sea and through Caucasian Albania, Iberia, and Colchis. Ah, money. Historians such as Plutarch and Dio give their own take on why Pompey entered the region. Dio says it was because attacks by the Caucasian Albanians forced retaliation while Plutarch says it was out of necessity. Why did Plutarch say it was out of necessity? He literally doesn't say. Pompey's march to Iberia took him through Armenia and Colchis, and he attacked the Iberians to preempt an ambush he learned they were planning according to Dio. Things for Tigranes II of Armenia were looking bleak though. He had been usurped by his son, also named Tigranes, and was desperate to reclaim his throne. Now, we have a candidate for the son of the year award. Mithridates was a little too busy to help, so Tigranes made a humiliating peace deal with Pompey and surrendered all his western provinces over to the Romans and became a tribute-paying Roman ally. This diversion might be justified militarily. Why would Pompey really have come into our fair region? Well, taking over Iberia would confirm and stabilize any arrangements that were made with the Armenians, and stop Mithridates from using Iberia as an escape route in case the Romans took Colchis. Plus, the Georgian mountain passes aren't very hospitable to travelers through the mountain passes, except of course for the native Mithridatic army. So controlling the valleys of Iberia and Colchis would allow the ease of movement for Roman troops. However, this doesn't explain the excursion into Caucasian Albania. Maybe Dio is right that they attacked the Romans and needed to be retaliated against. In December of 66 BC, we finally have a month, King Artag entered the picture with King Oroes of Caucasian Albania, and together they attacked the Romans along the Kura River. The ferocity of the Iberians and Albanians does not need to be elaborated on, but in the end, the Romans proved victorious. Artag and Oroes were forced to come to a truce and retreated. Pompey then wintered in the upper Kura River and came down in spring to attack Iberia, where he killed 9,000 soldiers and captured 10,000 prisoners, before going further downriver to attack the Caucasian Albanians. Things aren't looking great for our Georgians. In the face of all these defeats, Artag sent peace envoys just like Tigranes II had done. However, his intentions were not honest. Artag began preparing an ambush for Pompey at Miteshieta and would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for those meddling Romans and their blasted general Pompey overtaking the Iberian king and capturing the garrison. This wouldn't stop Artag, however. He had a foreign enemy in his land and WOULD drive him out. King Artag crossed the Kura River and burned all the bridges that connected the banks. Pompey outmaneuvered them, however, and found a way to change the situation to his advantage. He proceeded to conquer all of Inner Iberia south of the Kura River and waited for the summer heat to dry up the Kura and Aragwi rivers enough for his army to ford them. Pompey proceeded to destroy the forest cover Artag was using and routed him. Artag, now convinced he had lost, had to offer his sons to Pompey as hostages, and Pompey demanded a bed, a table, and a throne of gold along with a promise of fealty to the Roman Republic just so King Artag didn't have to go to Rome in chains. On a side note, Pompey's triumph in Rome would also include three Iberian nobles that included Artax's sons, a Colchian Skeptolkoi named Othasus, two Caucasian Albanians, Tigranes the Usurper, five sons of Mithridates VI, and two daughters of the Judean king Aristobulus II. The Iberians managed to avoid being fully conquered by the Romans thanks to their combined negotiations and tactical retreats from battle, allowing for the center of Iberia to avoid being devastated. They eventually saved their own skins through a treaty, and instead of fighting to the bitter end, lived quite happily after Pompey had left. Having just defeated the Iberians, Pompey marched across to Colchis and widened the mule track over the Lechy Pass to accommodate wheeled vehicles. He proceeded to bluff and fight his way to the Colchian coast, and appointed Aristarchos as a governor over a subdued central Colchis. You can't really conquer Colchis, just pacify them for a bit. Of course, Pompey managed to avoid fighting with the Svans, Abkhazians, and the Circassians of northern Colchis because, well, he didn't really need to since Mithridates was blockaded and isolated. In a classic Pompeian procrastination. He backtracked through Iberia and fought once more with the king of the Albanians, Oroes. The Albanians proved to be rather hostile and mounted a heavy defense against the Romans. They were subdued and given peace, which despite the positive connotations, you really don't want to be given peace by the Romans. Being so close to Parthia, Pompey decided to check the strength of their forces by attacking them. The Parthians repelled him, and he decided that he had a better use of his time. The year is 64 BC, and Pompey had now managed to effectively bind Transcaucasia to the Romans as three allied kingdoms, Iberia, Armenia, and Caucasian Albania. Colchis was governed by Aristarchos, who reported to Deotar, ruler of Paphlagonia. Coins have been found that bear the name of Aristarchos of Colchis, but no royal title is associated with them. Now, a small tangent, if you please, about society and life in Artax, Siberia. We have Strabo's descriptions based on reports he read from Theophanes the Miletian, who accompanied Pompey's legions to Iberia, so we have him to thank for this cross-section of the power structure of the elites and the life of the common people. Strabo notes that there are two kinds of Iberians. We have Highlanders, I have already made that joke in a a previous episode, and Lowlanders. The Highlanders resembled their steppe counterparts the Scythians, while the lowlanders resembled the Persians. The Assetians and Chechens were far more nomadic than their lowlander counterparts. Strabo also makes note of the four castes that are prevalent among Iberian society. The first class is that of the royal family, where the Spaspeti is usually appointed to be the king's second in command, and was confused as a second king by the ancient historians. The Spaspeti was usually a person that was of blood relation to the royal household, and was in charge of administering justice and commanding the army. The second is that of the priest who acted as judges whenever people had some sort of controversy. The third is that of soldiers and farmers. The fourth is that of the peasants who are slaves of the king and perform every task that pertains to human livelihood. Archaeologists also note that graves found dating back to the 2nd century BC often contain no grave goods. People were also often buried in enormous wine jars suggesting a movement away from a military to a more urban society. However, we must abandon this digression and focus on Mithridates' work in Iberia. Unlike Colchis, which had become dominated by the Pontic Empire, Iberia had a far more equitable relationship with them. A trading partnership via the Silk Road route that went through Caucasia, then India, and the Black Sea ensured that both parties were interested in staying on friendly terms. Things were a little tense between some nations, though. For one, Mithridates' hold on Colchis caused some border friction due to Iberian claims on the land, more so because Parnavas had once had Colchis under his dominion via his vassal Kuji. Also, thanks to the closeness of the Armenian and Iberian kingdoms, anything that involved Tigranes II would also be relevant to dealings with Iberia so even having an alliance with the Iberians allowed for Pontus to have more troops against the Romans. For the Iberians, stabilization of their Colchian frontier was of the utmost priority, so even if it was out of their control, they would still need to have good relations with the Colchian rulers. Colchis was, of course, not the only issue the Iberians had to deal with, as they dealt with other people to their north and east. If we're being honest, Iberia didn't really take part in the Mithridatic Wars, and if they did, it was only in supporting the Armenians and reacting to Pompey entering their lands. Of course, the Iberians weren't that happy with Mithridates to begin with. Once they saw that Mithridates was losing, they attacked him as he made his way from Armenia to Colchis through their marshlands, attacking the guy who is trying to defend you, making him less capable of defending you. Now that's what we call a pro gamer move. Anyway. Pompey might have taken all the glory and treasure for defeating Mithridates, but he had other Roman military leaders to thank for contributing to his defeat. Nevertheless, Pompey wanted more. Now, Pompey was something that you might call an Alexander the Great fanboy, so as he traversed through the Caucasus region, you can sort of see him imagining himself as an Alexander-style explorer-conqueror. Plus, he was the HBIC, or the head Roman in charge, because the bee is silent, so whatever new king, city, or dynasty he encountered would see him as Rome itself. Of course, the limited perspective of the people he conquered didn't really reflect the reality of the complex Roman system. Tigranus the usurper understood the Roman way a bit better, and invited Pompey to dinner with him, and demanded that Pompey bestow him honors. If Pompey denied him Tigranes could easily find another Roman to do just that. I find it rather funny that Tigranes understood this idea of Roman patronage as a competition, especially if you could play them against each other, but this is a very dangerous game. Pompey, of course, agreed to bestow honors of him, the honor of being his prisoner during his triumph in Rome. These expeditions took Pompey all over the place, except to where Mithridates is. Pompey went from the Caucasus to Judea Syria, and Arabia. His ambitions caused him to diverge from stopping Mithridates, and diverging from the task on hand became more the rule than the exception for Pompey. Hey, that sounds like me in college. Pompey's adventures in the Caucasus proved to be a major success for him, as he was able to explore new territory, fight unknown enemies, and extend Rome's influence. It's also thanks to Pompey that Colchis and Iberia are now able to be given more attentions, since they are now on the northeastern edge of the Roman Republic, and Iberia is a Roman tributary state. Yes, sources. I mean, what? Yes. His rock through the Caucasus changed quite a lot for the region. Artag managed to keep his kingdom until he died in 63 BC, and Tigranus II maintained power until he died in 55 BC. However, it's also thanks to Pompey that Armenia's expansion had been checked, and all the Caucasian kingdoms now had their independence assured. As thanks for letting Iberia remain independent, I'll gladly keep Pompey's name off of our list of humble people and not make fun of his Magnus title. Of course, I'll still make fun of his actual name, (laughs) Gaius. One day, in 63 BC, Pompey received some rather grave news. Mithridates had died. Pompey was then forced to rush back to reclaim the corpse and Mithridates' treasures. How did Mithridates die, though? Well, Mithridates, as a long-time undefeated father of the year, had another son betray him, this time being Pharnacus. Seeing all his allies abandon him, Mithridates sixth Eupater decided to commit suicide. Supposedly, he attempted to kill himself by taking poison, but as the legend goes, he had made himself immune to poisons. He then had one of his bodyguards kill him. Well, that's it for Mithridates. With the death of King Artag of Iberia, we move on to our seventh Iberian king, Bartom, according to the Kartlis Heba. or as we're going to call him, like everyone else does, Farnavas II. I don't get why the Kartlis Horeba likes to change things so much. Georgian chroniclers, get your act together. I know you're dead, but get your act together. And that's where we're going to end it. Iberia managed to keep their kingdom, Mithridates VI, Eupater, was brought down by his sons, and Pompey managed to bring more land to Rome. Join us next time as we look into Artax's successor, Farnavaz II, and his supposed usurpation by Mirvan II, and what his successor, Arshak II, does in episode 10, the second coming of Farnavaz, Mirvan, and Arshak. Huh, get it? Because they're all the Seconds? Oh, and Julius Caesar and Crassus, not the Crassus from the Triumvirate, Mark Antony's Lieutenant Crassus, also make an appearance. At the beginning of the episode, you heard from Casting Through Ancient Greece. Links to their show will be provided in the show notes and on the website. Mark does an amazing job telling the story of the ancient Greeks, and I avidly listen to his show. Plus, he has a smooth voice and an amazing Aussie accent. To support us, Feel free to look us up on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram as The History of Sacardvelo, Georgia, on Twitter at history underscore Georgia, on our website at historyofsacartvelo.com, or on our email at thehistoryofsacartvello, Georgia at gmail.com. is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L O. If you would be so kind in aiding with purchasing sources, I have a link to the Amazon wish list in the transcription on the website, but it's only if you want to. Also, a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast host goes a long way with getting the word out about the show and helping us reach new people to learn about Georgia. Madlaba nachvamdis, And thank you for listening to The History of Sacred Georgia. See you next time.